Welcome to the Nen Valley Vineyard podcast. What you're about to listen to is some teaching from our Sunday services. We're a church made up of people from Wellingborough through to Oundle spread across the Nen Valley and beyond. If you want to know more about us or find out how to get involved, visit our website, which is nenvalley.church, or you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Nen Valley Vineyard. So today we're continuing our series um, on living as exiles. Two weeks ago we began the series by talking about how we are living in a time of change um, at the moment and how we need to remember to that we're not fighting a battle against flesh and blood um, and how we need to be careful to continue to follow God um, through those changes and follow Jesus. Um, you know, we're in a massive time of change in our country and in the world um, One of the reasons we're talking about this is because one of those changes is that the latest census has kind of officially made us as Christians in England and Wales a minority. Um, But actually what that really is, is just a reflection of the last few decades kind of catching up um, with reality. Last week, Tom spoke about living in the tension of being exiles and not compromising our obedience to God. Um, that in participating with the world around us, we need to seek the prosperity of the kingdom of God in all that we do. So I'm going to unpack that a little bit more this morning by talking about redemptive participation and and how we live out influence by finding our identity and purpose in God in order to see the world around us changed for his good. I'm going to start with a story. So I'm going to read this bit. In his book... Rumours of Another World, Philip Yancey tells the story of a British officer. Um, His name was Ernest Gordon and he was a prisoner of war in World War II. He was captured by the Japanese. Gordon was put to work in in building the Burma CM Railway in the thick Thai jungle to aid the Japanese war effort. The the treatment of the prisoners by the Japanese guards was obviously horrific. You know, they were beaten to death if they appeared to be not working hard enough. Um, They worked in near 50 degree heat and eventually 80,000 men would die trying to build the railroad. Gordon himself became very unwell at one point and almost died. And the prison camp was so awful to live in, like it was truly a definition of survival of the fittest. And selfishness and hate were the ethos of the camp. So it wasn't a nice place to live. So one day, one of the returning uh, work crews was missing a shovel And the Japanese guard in charge had been screaming that if it was not returned, then he would begin shooting the prisoners. Tensions obviously rose within the group and no one was stepping forward. And the guard got more angry as the wait continued until eventually he lifted his rifle to start shooting at will. At that moment, one of the prisoners stepped forward and confessed, I did it. He put his hand up and he said he did it. The guards brutally beat him to death in front of the group. And later that evening, it was discovered that after a fresh inventory of the tools, that the guards had simply miscounted. The prisoner had stepped forward, totally innocent of the alleged crime, to save the lives of others in the group. And it's a tragic story, but something amazing happened. The act of selfless love and sacrifice transformed the atmosphere among the prisoners in the camp. One of the prisoners remembered Jesus' words, No greater love has any man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. The truth of that verse, lived out and demonstrated by the prisoner who confessed, began to shake the camp. And Gordon recalls, true, there was hatred, but there was also love. And there was death, but there was also life. God had not left us. He was with us, calling us to live in the divine life of fellowship. 
Yancey goes on to explain how the kingdom of God began to break out in the camp and how amidst of war of hell, amidst of hell of war, the beauty of heaven shone through. And they began to see the gifts and talents of the other prisoners and brought them all together to form a university within the camp in the middle of the jungle. Between them, their university offered courses in history, philosophy, ethics, economics, maths, natural science, and at least nine languages, including Latin, Greek, Russian, and Sanskrit. And they built a church as a sacred place for worship, and they made their own paints and started a gallery and hosted art exhibitions. And they made instruments and performed Mozart, ballets, and musical theatre. And when they were eventually released, they treated the guards who tortured them with love and kindness and compassion. And in reflecting on the story, Yancey writes, perhaps something like this was what God had, is what Jesus had in mind when he turned again and again to his favourite topic, the kingdom of God. In the soil of his violent, disordered world, an alternative community may take root. It lives in the hope of a day of liberation. In the meantime, it aligns itself with another world, not just spreading rumours, but planting settlements in advance of that coming reign. So in the midst of an ungodly scenario, one man did something that was most needed in that moment. You know, hearing that story makes me personally feel like that was a huge thing. Like a man stood up and gave his life for his friends. But when we look at the amount of lives lost in World War II, it kind of wasn't that significant. Um, and it wasn't that big. You know, it wasn't an uncommon thing that he did. Lots of people did that at that time. But in his small act of selfless participation, (laughs) he saved the lives of a few and transformed hell into a form of heaven on earth for many prisoners in horrific conditions. He participated in the story of God. So for me, that's just a great analogy of how, you know, of what happens when we participate with God in our culture in a way that the kingdom of heaven touches earth. So we're going to look at Daniel 6 today. I don't know if it's coming up there. It's quite a long chapter. It's one to verse 1 to 29. So it pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps. Satraps, if you don't know, are kind of local rulers um, across the, the um, province. Um, and so they ruled throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. Satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Daniel was so distinguished in himself among the administrators in the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set over him the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators in the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we'll never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it's something to do with the law of his God. So these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, May King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict, which is a rule or a a law, um, and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, will be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem and he prayed three times a day. He gave thanks to God just as he'd done before. 
And then these men went as a group to him and found Daniel praying and, ask, and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Do you not publish, did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or human being except you, your majesty, would be thrown to the lion's den? And the king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put in, your write, in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Then the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, Remember, your majesty, that according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel down and threw him to the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called Daniel in an anguished voice. Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, may the king live forever. My God has sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was so overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. At the king's command, the men who'd falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den, along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Sounds pretty brutal, doesn't it? <laughs> then King Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language in, the, in all the earth, May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Sirius the Persian. So at the point where kind of Daniel was stitched up by the other rulers, he could have done a number of things. He could have lied and said, I didn't go and pray three times a day. What are you talking about? That wasn't me. Um, he could have tried to make the others look bad by telling Darius all about the things that they'd done wrong and where their integrity was not up to scratch. Or he could have renounced his faith and begun to worship Darius instead. But he doesn't do any of those things. He continues to make it his priority to draw closer to God and to refuse to compromise his identity and purpose. And that's kind of what we're talking about today through redemptive participation and how we um, continue to kind of keep working for God through, through what we're doing and how, you know, we refuse to compromise him. Daniel and his friends were different. They opposed the things that God opposed and they affirmed the things that God affirmed. You know, they, brought, they, they affirmed the things that brought out the best in humanity and they created alternative outcomes to conflict um, in the cultural story around them. And even in, and every time that they did this, God moved. They became a redemptive culture in a foreign land. They looked to help God in his plans to save the people around them from sin, sin, error and evil. 
So how do we do redemptive participation? Jeremiah 29, verse 4 to 7. Oh, did that go wrong? Uh, written to Daniel's cohort says, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons and give to your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers you, prospers, you too will prosper. So it's kind of easy for us to judge the culture around us and, um, you know, say things are like all the things that are going on in the world are wrong and how we should be kind of praying against it. Um, But the New Testament is clear that it's not the job of our church to to do the judging. You know, Jesus didn't turn up to condemn the, the world so that we need to be careful not to do this ourselves. Instead, we can participate in whatever ways we can. You know, there are times where um, we're called not to participate because it can go against the ways of God. But we need to remember that every person is made in the image of God. And so we need to ask God to give us fresh eyes to see the good in people and the world around us um, when all we see is the bad stuff. And in a way of doing that is asking God for peace. Matthew 5 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called children of God. You know, this is something that Jesus taught really, really well. He didn't go to cause conflict by overthrowing the governments or the local councils. You know, instead, he had a reputation for befriending the sinners, healing the sick, raising the dead, casting out demons, cleansing the lepers, feeding the hungry, washing people's feet, and so on. And it seems that it's not important to Jesus to change the minds of people, you know, but to get involved in ways that don't compromise what we believe. But don't get me wrong, because peace is not in action, you know. But all if, all we, if all we're doing is being noisy, you know, no one's going to listen and no one's going to get heard. So there's not going to be any change. There's nothing going to be different about that situation. But instead, we can stand up and say, you know, that thing that you're doing doesn't sit right with me. Um, and I'm not going to participate with what you're doing. And instead, we can go and pray for those people and we can ask God for help and guidance on what it is we should be doing instead. You know, each time Daniel stood firm in his faith, um, each king, not just Darius, affirmed God as the one true God, and Daniel would be promoted further into prominence and influence in Babylon. And it's also interesting that Darius wants to save Daniel and spends the whole day trying to, like, look for loopholes in his own law that he made um, to just to try and save Daniel because of how much he favoured him. And Daniel got that favour through, you know, being so faithful to his God. And that doesn't mean to say that we should sell ourselves to favour, but equally, Jesus worked to grow in favour with people. You know, Luke 2, 52 says, Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favour with God and man. And so if we aren't growing in favour with the people around us, you know, perhaps we need to look at our own actions. You know, it's one thing for cultures and ideologies not to like us, but in countries where the church is illegal, they often, you know, have the favour from their neighbours. Um, and that's often how the gospel spreads in those places. So, you know, encouraging you to take part in the cultural story of your neighbourhood. You know, look at how you can bring health and positive well-being to those around you in your community. You know, support good initiatives like food banks and charities that do good. Take time to go on prayer walks. I know Julia goes on prayer walks quite often. 
um, around the neighbourhood, you know, go to read with the children in the local school, join the community litter picks, get involved in Dr Tot, which is our parent and toddler group that we run on a Monday, um, or Teen Challenge, who support the homeless and with, those, with their addictions um, in our town. There's plenty for us all to do, and not just in the big ways, but just in the small ways as well. So the question here then is, how is God inviting us to participate? You know, where might we grow in favour with others? How might we bless those around our neighbourhood to thrive? How might we encourage the other parents at the school gate or those that we work with and our neighbours? Hang on a sec. Yeah, I'm with it. So we can do that by bringing the prosperity of the kingdom or bringing the kingdom, by being naturally supernatural. So Mike Pilavachi and Andy Croft have a great book called Everyday Supernatural, and the subtitle is Living a Spirit-Led Life Without Being Weird. And if that doesn't make you want to buy it, I don't know what does, because that's right up my street, you know. <laughs> when somebody who uh, probably is a little bit weird anyway and tries to really hard to not be, you know, that's, that's what I want to be looking for, ways not to look weird. Um, being naturally supernatural is not about trying to work God into every conversation that you have or telling people that you'll pray for them at the end of every time you see them. Um, but it's about listening to God and looking for the opportunities that he presents to you in natural ways. So for those of you who don't know, I work in Asda in Rawns um, on the tills. So I stand there and talk to the majority of people who come through our shop every single time I'm there, which is four times a week. Um, for either five or six hours, so do the maths, it's about 20 hours. Um, it's in the heart of our community, um, and I see people coming in from all over the Nen Valley. Um, and there was a lady that came to me on Thursday who was asking about a job, and I was telling her how to apply, and she went on to tell me some of her struggles, that you know she, she struggles with anxiety, and that um, asking if our store is a good place to work, and like how they might kind of be accommodating to her, and I just felt a little nudge to just give a bit of my own story. Um, you know, I explained that Tom and I are the pastors of this church and how my anxiety was at a full-time high, like the highest it had ever been when we first moved here. You know, I just had Eden, I had the two girls, we were moving schools, I was moving my whole entire life from 25 down, minutes down the road, but it makes a difference, you know, it was a huge thing. Um, my confidence was at an all-time low because we'd been in lockdown, so I hadn't been leading, I hadn't been around many people for nearly three years. It was, it was huge. Um, and now I had to come in and lead a church and lead Sunday services, and it was terrifying, and I didn't know how to do it. Um, and I did, I did lead a Sunday service one Sunday quite early on in the time that we'd been here, um, but I felt that I'd done such a bad job that I had a huge anxiety attack when we got home and completely lost the plot um, and refused to lead another seven-day service ever again. Um, and I didn't do it for months and months and months. I completely swore it off. And, I was, and every time Tom asked me, just the anxiety would rise up in me again and I couldn't breathe. Um, but I was telling her that when I actually I started working for ASDA, which again was a huge step because I hadn't been in work for two years and I had all this anxiety and all this stress... Um, but actually I found that my confidence had grown and that I was a human being outside of my home from my family and that I could have conversations with people where, you know, they liked me and I was funny and, you know, 
just all of the things that you kind of build up in your head, the negative thoughts that you think about yourself, you know, had begun to kind of gone away. And I found the ability to lead on a Sunday again. And this lady went on to tell me how funny it was that she felt that she needed to share some of her story with me, you know, a pastor who she didn't even know was a pastor before she was stood talking to me um, and how I was able to help her feel at ease through my own story. But in that, God didn't pray, like prompt me to pray for her. I didn't feel like that was something that I needed to do then. Um, He just prompted me to give a little bit of myself to her, which I believe actually blessed her in a much bigger way than if I'd stood there and prayed really loudly and passionately for her and asked for deliverance of her anxiety in the middle of the store right there and then, you know. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that. If that's how God feels, like asks you to kind of um, to pray for people and to shine his light, then go for it. But I'm just saying that that's not how he asks me to do that. But then the next customer I had was a regular. Um, And he'd kind of overheard some of the conversation that we'd had he was commenting on the fact that I was a Christian, making a bit of a joke, kept doing this and, ooh, you know, he clearly felt uncomfortable by the fact that we'd had this conversation um, and that I'd ignored him until I'd finished having this conversation with this lady as well. <laughs> um, it's not what I'm supposed to do at my job. Um, but yeah, so he kind of felt uncomfortable by what I shared with this lady and we were talking about it and then all of a sudden he just stopped talking about it and said, I can't go home and sleep without having this alcohol tonight. You know, I can't, I can't sleep without drinking this alcohol. You know, I'll be up until the middle of the night if I don't drink myself to sleep. It was at that point that I felt prompted to pray. And it wasn't a big, long, super spiritual prayer. It was a gentle hand on the forearm. In Jesus' name, I just pray that you'll have a really good night's sleep tonight without drinking this alcohol. And then said, Amen. And he agreed and he left the store and that was it. No, it was so simple. It was so natural and just so precious. John 5 verse 19 says, Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. We want to see where the Lord is inviting us to join him in what he's doing. Like I say, it's not in the big things. It's in the small things too. For me at work, it's the way that I do customer service by smiling at people and saying hello to them as they come in. You know, helping a lady who forgot her walking stick get back to her car, you know. Um, Helping a new mum pack her shopping bags because the baby was crying and she was clearly stressed. You know, I've been there. It's horrible when the baby is screaming and you're just trying to get out the shop, you know, just helping her. Um, And actually, I got rewarded through that from from the bosses as well, um, which was pretty cool. But it's also in the way that I show God's love to my colleagues. It's inviting the ladies who look after their grandchildren or have small children themselves to Dr. Tot or inviting them to the ladies' meal that we have sometimes. It's by listening to the problems and anxieties they all have um, and keeping them confidential. And that's a really important part of it. Everybody always says to me, don't tell anyone that I've told you this. I'm like, I'm not going to. I'm not going to say a thing. And it means that they come back and tell me more and I'm able to kind of do more ministry through through that because I'm keeping it confidential and it's been by it's by being referred to as work mum by some of the young men which I'm like I'm not old enough to be a work mum but they're like Ash you're 15 years older than us like no it's not kind of technically like physically you know it can happen I'm like mm, okay <laughs> um, 
But, you know, I listen to their hopes and dreams and I encourage them how, like, in taking steps to achieve that and to achieve all the things that they want to, as well as being honest with them and affirming my own difficulties. And often, you know, just saying, I know how hard it is and I've had to do a load of work on myself. I've been in therapy, I've been there and I've done that. But my God is so faithful and he gets me through it all. And for you, it might be helping a neighbour with their odd jobs or helping or having them over for a cup of tea, um, staying behind at the club that you go to just to help tidy up. You know, in these places, we might see what the father is doing and you might get a chance to actually kind of join him in that. And don't worry, you know, he'll make it clear to you. You know, he'll also let you know what you need to do and help you do it. It's not like I go to work and set out to kind of go, right, Jesus, you know, we're going to do this and we're going to do that. You know, I just go to work and I'm there and I'm myself. And all these little things just kind of present themselves to me. And then God just kind of drops a little thing in my head and is like, this is me. I'm like, okay, cool, let's go with this. You know, this is the thing of bringing God's kingdom. It's healing the sick and raising the dead and casting out the demons. It's cleansing the lepers, like I said before, and feeding the poor and baptizing people. You know, teaching people to obey Jesus. That's all the Jesus stuff. And it's all what Jesus did when he was on earth. And he tells us that we will do greater things than what, we, what he did, which for me just blows my mind. <laughs> like, how can we do more than Jesus did? Um, but the challenge is that are we looking and listening for God, what God is saying in our everyday? You know, the question becomes, do I believe in God's kingdom? Do, does it, can I believe that it can come through me? Um, and I think Jesus would say, yeah, absolutely it can. Like, let's do it. And then the third thing is to remain faithful in God, remain faithful to him. And Daniel leads by example there by showing us that remaining faithful in prayer um, is the one thing that draws us closer to God. And it making a lifestyle of fervent prayer helps us to stand firm in our faith and to not allow others to compromise what we believe. You know, Daniel's faithful, prayerful and accepting that you know, this could cost him everything. This could cost him his life. He's going to get thrown to the lion's den if he goes and prays three times a day. But he did it anyway because he was willing to put everything on the line for God through participating with him. Are you willing to put everything on the line for God through participating with him? Or we could break that question down a little bit further um, to make it a little less scary because that's quite, quite a big thing. You know, What ways could God be inviting you to stand firm in your faith right now? Where do you need to stand on the truth of the scriptures more than ever? Okay, we're at the end. So if you're like me, the kind of person who feels the burden of the world on their shoulders, want to go and save everybody and, you know, be some kind of superhero, but not knowing how to, like seeing a problem and having some sort of kind of paralysis about, you know, not knowing what to do, seeing the problem, not knowing how to fix it, because it just feels too big then look to what's around you and how you can help in smaller ways. You know, break it down into smaller, more manageable tasks um, that don't feel overwhelming and feel like you're going to instantly fail. You could ask yourself some questions like, where has God placed you? Where do you have favour? What influence do you have on others and how do you use it? And how is God inviting you to respond this morning? You know, what's that next step for you to take? And God has placed you exactly where you are for a purpose. And your identity in him is the one thing that will give you the strength and the capacity to be able to do this, to serve him in whichever way you feel that he's leading you into. 
Like I said, it doesn't need to be anything big. You know, it could just be waking up in the morning and asking him, Lord, what are we doing today? That's it. You know, he can use you in significant ways. You need to just come to God with a simple prayer of, Lord, show me what's the next thing I need to do. You know, Anna in Frozen 2 says about doing the next right thing. (laughs) You know, so I kind of like to think of myself as Anna from Frozen saying, what's the next right thing? Um, You know, maybe it's getting involved in the ways I've mentioned before or by investing in your confidence in praying for people for healing. Just make yourself available to God. You know, he's not looking for the people who are fearless. He's just looking for people who are available and just willing to, to do it. You know? Let's stand. Well, thanks so much for listening to this teaching from Nain Valley Vineyard. We pray it blesses you and produces good fruit in you. If we can connect to you or help you engage with our community, we'd love to hear from you. You can contact us via our website, which is nainvalley.church.